you, John. As John was praying, and as we were praying along with him, and you heard the prayer requests that are a part of this body, we're one. As you saw the video with the students and the counselors at Sedine Bible Camp, we're one. As we uh, pray for our brothers and sisters like Jack Phillips and others in other countries who are facing uh, discrimination and in some cases horrible persecution, we're one with them. And God has intended our own local body, this church, to demonstrate that oneness to the community around us. Years ago, there was a a um, book that was written by a sociology professor. Uh, he, was, um, uh, he worked for the National Council of Churches. His name is Dr. Dean Kelly. And um, uh, he was uh, also a board member of the uh, ACLU. And he wrote a book called Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. Fascinating title because... The, the organization that he worked for, National Council of Churches, was, was mystified because all of these, these uh, their denominational churches were just dwindling on the vine. But these other churches were booming. Why conservative churches are growing? And he, he did his sociological research, and he came up with a, a, a startling conclusion. Now I'm going to give you his answer. Number one, they're growing because they give authoritative answers to man's need for meaning in life. Number two, they try to maintain tight theological consistency between doctrine and behavior. Let me translate those two answers. Number one, they believe the Bible. Number two, they try to live it. Who knew? What a shock. Revolutionary. Scripture calls the church the body of Christ. Colossians speaks a lot about that and about Jesus as the head of the body of Christ. People don't see the head in the same way that they did when he was walking this earth, but they do see the body. We have the only visible manifestation of Jesus on this planet right now. But the head of the body is beautiful. He's beautiful. Have you ever seen those body panels where you get behind the panel and you stick your head through and your friends and relatives take pictures that they'll show at your wedding. And, uh, you know, you, your head is on the body of you, Mr. Universe Bodybuilder or, or Fred Flintstone or Scooby-Doo or whoever it may be. And, and it's, it's funny because of the incongruity. The head and the body are so mismatched that everyone knows what's real and what's not and they know it's a joke. But sometimes... It's not funny. This past week, the sexual abuse scandal that was reported in the news over 300 Catholic priests over a period of 70 years, that was exposed. And, and the horrific cover-up conspiracy that was a part of that. And I know this happens in other places of authority, Schools, sports, I, I know that that happens. But this, in those 
who claim to be followers of Jesus? And unfortunately, that's the image that unbelievers have of most Christians. Don't put Jesus' head on top of a cartoon character or a devil. The goal would be that people would look at the body. And and we can only manage our goal here. But the goal would be that people would look at the body and because of the kindness, the winsomeness, the ring of truth of the message, that they would want to look at the head, that they would want to know the head, to see the head of such a body. So when people look at Signal Mountain Bible Church, do they see our body functioning like Jesus and have a pretty good idea of what Jesus might look like? That's my question. When people look at our church, and and please, this is something that we have to maintain and be vigilant to maintain because we can never ever say we have arrived this is an ongoing process individually and corporately so what does that vigilance look like this week we're having a kickoff study this week and next for our two for our growth groups in which we dig more deeply into each other's lives and try to apply the one another's of scripture which i'm going to read at the end of our study this morning um Whether or not you're in a growth group, this still applies to you because you're still a part of the body here. The text I want us to use, to look at, is in Ephesians chapter 4 for this week and next, interrupting our series in Romans for a bit. So go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Here's the big picture of the book of Ephesians. Over and over again, Paul discusses doctrine and then application to life. Well, the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about doctrine, about what's not seen. And the last three chapters are about what's seen by everybody around us. Practice, application of that doctrine. So, what we're going to be looking at is in Ephesians chapter 4, this morning, verses 1 through 6, and our focus is really going to be on verses 1 to 3. Let me read those for you. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. uh, Verse 1 gives the exhortation. And what's the exhortation? Walk worthy. Verses 2 and 3 explain how to walk worthy. And this is where we're going to be spending most of our time in these three verses. But in verses 4 through 6, we see the foundation we see seven ones laid out, which I'll mention to you briefly at the end. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. It was a coastal city. He spent over three years there on his missionary journey, second and third journey together. And he wrote while he was in prison at Rome. 
So he begins verse 1 of chapter 4 by saying, I therefore, and the therefore refers to all the doctrine on which he has been, uh, on which he has been, has been building the points that he's going to make now. Therefore, the prisoner, does he say the prisoner of Nero? No. He says the prisoner of the Lord, because God is the one who is in charge of his circumstances. The prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Let's pause there for just a moment. The word walk is one of the most common descriptions of living out the truth of Scripture in your life, living out a biblical worldview. It is used more in Ephesians than in anywhere, any other epistle. It's used eight times in Ephesians to describe how we live life. Walk, 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 until it finally gets to the end of that and says, therefore, stand. So it's a perfect description of how we are to live our life. But we're not merely to walk, we're to walk worthy. And there's a word picture that's involved in that term, worthy. It was used of a balance beam scale with equal weights on both sides. You've seen balance beam scales. You've got the weights on one side. You've got the object that you're weighing on the other. And you shift, you adjust the one side accordingly to make sure that things are equal or worthy. And the the idea here is this. On one side of the scale, you've got your calling. You've got the grace of God and salvation that's been described in chapters 1 to 3. That's what's on one side. On the other side, you have your daily decisions about how you're going to live. How you're going to live in your church, your family, and your work. Those are the the areas of focus in chapters 4 through 6. But also, there are applications here for your entertainment for your money, for all those things that are a part of living out your biblical worldview. And the point here is walk worthy. Make sure that those sides match. That's the goal. Live in a way that reflects the truth of who you are and what God has done. That's the exhortation. I entreat you to do this. And in verses 2 and 3, he goes into detail about how we're to walk worthy. And it's, it's... It may come as a surprise if you were writing this yourself. You might have written it differently than Paul did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because Paul doesn't give techniques or methods or self-help advice or strategies. Instead, he offers four attitudes or character qualities that are to be ours. With all humility, that's the first one, and gentleness, that's the second. With patience, that's the third. Showing forbearance to one another in love, and that's the fourth. Let's take a look at those four qualities and unpack them. Because as you look at these four, you have to ask yourself, do I have this quality? If I'm going to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, if I'm going to maintain that, if I'm going to walk worthy, does this quality affect the way I live? Do I have this? Is it developing within me? Do people see this quality in my life or are they looking at a cartoon character? Something less, or God forbid, the opposite of this quality. The first one is humility. We're used to hearing people talk about the virtue of humility and and probably it doesn't jar us because we hear people say, you know, we're to be humble, we're not to be proud. But that's, I, I will promise you, it would have jarred the Ephesians. It would have jarred, it would have been jarring to the first century, any first century 
reader because to the first century Greeks like the Ephesians, Greeks and Romans did not regard humility as a virtue, which is why the word doesn't even occur in ancient Greek. Epictetus, who was a Stoic philosopher, remember Paul quotes Stoic and Epicurean philosophers in, at Mars Hill in Acts 17. Epictetus was one of those Stoic philosophers. And he listed, his, this, he listed humility as the first quality to avoid. But what's the opposite of humility? Will you tell me? What's the opposite of humility? Pride. Everybody knows that. Good. Well done. Bible scholars all over the room. And pride is that very thing that keeps us in a place where we are too stubborn to admit our sin and receive grace. <laughs> once we're saved, once we've received God's grace, salvation in Jesus Christ, once we have received that, we need ongoing humility to become servants of Jesus and of others, servants of Christ. You remember in Mark chapter 10, Jesus defined greatness as servanthood. A servant is someone who yields his rights to his master. So that's what greatness is. That's the only place in the Bible Jesus defines greatness. That's it. So the first quality is humility. You want to have oneness? Okay, that's number one, humility. Number two, gentleness. This is sometimes translated meekness in, maybe in some of your Bibles, which is often misunderstood. Was Jesus meek and gentle when he drove the money changers out of the temple? A, yes, B, no. Mm, you don't know, don't you? Do you? You think it's a trick question? It is. He was. He was. It's just that we misunderstand what meekness or gentleness means. This word, this Greek word was used to describe a watchdog. Does that clue you in to the idea here? The meaning is not demanding your own way, but someone who submits his rights to the will of his master, like a watchdog who, 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 over which his master has complete control. One scholar described the man who has gentleness as the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. I like that. Your commitment to these attitudes, humility and gentleness, is to be complete because the text says all humility, all gentleness. It's not holding back. It's not being humble and, and gentle when it's convenient or with easy people. The third quality is patience. One man did an extensive word uh, search on this term, and he described it this way at the, at, at the end. Long-tempered, intentional serenity. Well, that's a mouthful. Long-tempered, intentional serenity. The idea is not taking revenge on someone who may deserve it. And you can, but you choose not to. It means putting up with someone over time. It's, it's an endurance that does not abandon hope for that other person that they may change. Or that even if they don't change, you're still to treat them in this way with patience. Some of you have waited a long time for people whom you love to change. And this is the ability to wait patiently without immediate results that you see. It's, but here's the beautiful thing. You know what this word is also used of? 
It's used of God as he holds back his wrath from us because he is patient with us in the same way. Have we ever done him wrong? Yeah, every moment almost, sometimes. So that's, that's the idea here. I, I remember, uh, and, and the opposite of this is um, when you take revenge, when you give up on someone, and you take revenge because you can or because, or because you have no, you give up on them because you have lost any vision of the possibility that that other person can ever change, which means that you have lost the vision of what God can do. Your view of God has been diminished at that point of application. So, and I, I have to remind myself of this all the time. Yes, God can change that person because he's changing me and he's got a long way to go with that project. I remember a pastor that I once worked with. Um, actually, uh, he, was, he was maligned by a group of people within his church, not on the outside, but inside. He didn't retaliate. And in fact... He never even mentioned it to me. I learned it from other sources. I have great respect for this man and his godliness. He showed that long-tempered, intentional serenity. He was my pastor when I was in Nashville in college and uh, later wanted me to take over his church. I refused because I knew I will never be a pastor. So much for my omniscience. So, humility, gentleness, patience. The fourth term, forbearance. In fact, the phrase is showing forbearance. And the idea is continuously, unconditionally showing forbearance. I'm not talking about a sin here that needs to be confronted. That's a different category. The point is, among believers, there are... Some people among us that we don't always get along with. Is it possible that there are people here in this church that you and I don't get? Of course not. Right? Maybe they did something to um, hurt you. And maybe they didn't even know it. We sometimes choose to take offense when, even when offense may not be given. Maybe their personality just kind of grates on you, just rubs you the wrong way, because that's the way people are. And I know, you know, our personalities are unique, and, and, and some personalities don't mesh well. And I want to say for the record, I'm not thinking of anybody specifically here. I don't have, you know, I don't have this, this thing rolling through my mind. You know, don't put this person with that person. I don't have, that's not what's going on in my brain right now. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on in my brain right now. But, but at any rate, the, the, point, the point is, we all have come across believers in our walk with the Lord who we wish were not on our side. Hmm? 
Okay. The meaning here is, is holding up under a load that gets piled upon us. And here's how it works with people. Let's say I do something that irritates you. And then I do something else that irritates you. And then I do something else that irritates you. And it just gets piled on more and more over the months and years. And you could erupt or you could pray for me. You could make a choice whenever it happens again to pray for me and let it go. To truly let it go, which means you don't bring it up as a prayer request for other people. Right? Let me just share their problem with you so that you can pray more intelligently. No, we don't do that. Romans 12, 18 says, As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your sweet reasonableness, and this is the same Greek word as we see here in Ephesians 4, let your sweet reasonableness, that's the term, let your sweet reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, how can you possibly continue to show forbearance? Paul specifies how. Here it is, in love. That's a choice that we make. The reason why is that God shows forbearance to us. He puts up with us. He always seeks, always seeks my eternal best. That means I'm always to seek their eternal best. Verse 3 gives the goal, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Very, very rich phrase. Being diligent, it's the same word, same phrase uh, that's used in 2 Timothy 4. It's used twice where Paul says, make every effort to come to me soon. Why? Because I'm about to die. So Timothy, if you can get here quickly, bring the cloak, bring the books, bring the parchments. Make every effort, which implies haste and, and just and, and being intentional about it. That's what the word being diligent is. It's the same word, being intentional. It doesn't, it's, it's the attitude that doesn't assume that it's all going to work out well. In fact, it says, I'm not going to leave it alone. I'm going to be intentional about it, even if it's a matter of just praying for that person. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. This is the unity that we didn't create, but the Spirit creates. God has already done that. We're to be intentional about nurturing the gift, the precious gift of unity that God has given us. So nurture it. He's given it to us, so walk worthy as a body. Nurture that. And, and it, we have the bond of peace together. And the, the word means that the peace of God is the bond that connects us together as well as to Him. Because we are at peace with God, Romans 5.1, we can experience the peace of God internally and in our relationships with one another. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Christian unity is a precious gift from God. But it's a gift that we have to work to maintain. Okay, so what's the basis or foundation of that gift? They flow from, they flow from who God is. Very quickly, I just want to read it. I want you to look at verses 4 to 6. Seven ones. God has called us to oneness. And that reflects His oneness. I'm going to tell you something about the grammar here. Because I know you love it when I do that. 
Here, there are just words strung together with, to make a powerful point. Other than the one clause in verse 4, just as you were also called, there is no declarative sentence in these verses. There are no connectives in these verses. There are no verbs in these verses. In fact, it doesn't even begin, let us, or let there be one body. It doesn't even begin, there is one body. Some versions add that. There's just total abruptness here to highlight the importance of facts that are being laid down powerfully. One body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And that's the way it reads. The seven ones. Now, when you look at this, focus on the last one. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Each one of these verses could be several weeks' study. And if you've been with us very long, you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I know that. <laughs> but, but look at that last one. Look at verse, verse, verse 6. Not only is God's sovereignty universal, He's the Father of all. It's pervasive. It's over all, which refers to the supremacy and, and transcendence of God. It's through all, which means God pervades everything. Not just that he's everywhere present, but that everything that exists is his. It's in all, which means he inhabits everything, which refers to the, also to our spiritual union with him in Christ. And If you like doctrinal terms, and who doesn't, God is transcendent over us. He's eminent through us. He's intimate within us. There's just no greater truth that can be conceived and that is the unity that we all possess in Christ. Don't mess with that. Nurture that. Walk worthy of that. So for me to hinder that unity, for me to mess with Christ's body or to hurt someone within Christ's body and not to think about it, to choose not to think about that is to say, hey, you know what? This is my corner of the universe. This is my resentment. This is my anger. I have the right to do this. And God is excluded from it, and I'm sure he wouldn't care anyway, right? Do I have any right to go there? Do I have any right to have the arrogance and gall to go there? I've told you many times, God has given us three resources for spiritual growth. The Word of God over us. The Spirit of God within us. The body of Christ around us. Word of God over us. Spirit of God within us body of Christ around us. Those are the three resources. So how do we say to God, well, okay, I like the Word of God and I like the Spirit of God, but the body of Christ, eh, I, can take her, I, I can take it or leave it. Not in God's eyes. He's in love. Jesus is in love with the church. Love the church so much. He gave himself for it. So where do we get the gall to say, well, you know, I can take or leave it? no. If you love Jesus, do you love what Jesus loves? How dare we not? Okay. This passage, I think, is just beautiful. It's just beautiful. It lays the foundation for the fact that we're one, that we're to be committed to each other in the church. 
Jesus loves the church. So do I love what Jesus loves? If not, if I don't, I have three follow-up questions. If I don't love what Jesus loves, why not? If I don't love what Jesus loves, do I think that doesn't matter to Jesus? If I don't love what Jesus loves, what am I going to do about it? A long time ago, I read an article by a writer who describes two kinds of churchgoers. I'm going to close with this. Uh, And and some of you have heard this before, I think, uh, because I've heard it elsewhere also. Two kinds of churchgoers, consumers and communers. Consumers and communers. Consumers evaluate churches like baseball teams and compare pastors with maybe like pitchers. If you think of a baseball pitcher in a major league team, pastor had a good day, pastor had a bad day. Pastor needed to be taken out of the game. Pastor preached into overtime again. If pastor doesn't get over his slump and produce some better numbers, we'll call up somebody else to replace him. Or, you know, I think we'll transfer our loyalty to another stadium and watch some other, pa- some other, other pastors. And, and, and by the way, their loudspeakers better play music that we know. Or maybe, you know, I'm going to go to another stadium, beca- stadium because the other fans around me weren't friendly. Or I'm going to go to another stadium because this stadium didn't offer enough things for my kids. Consumers compare and critique congregations and pastors and it doesn't take much for them to change their loyalties because the loyalties don't go that deep. Communers come to church to meet God, to express his love for others, and they know that even, <laughs> even if we don't like everybody who's here, we've got to love them. We're to love what Jesus loves. And that means we're to be in love with the church. We're to be committed to fulfilling the one another's of Scripture. Going to read them to you. Be at peace with one another. Be devoted to one another. Give preference to one another. Build up one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Show tolerance for one another. Be kind to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Comfort one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, stimulate one another to loving good deeds, be hospitable to one another, be humble towards one another, love one another 18 times on that one. Love one another. Maybe God is speaking to you today about commitment to a body. And by the way, I'm not talking about commitment to this body. Wherever God wants you to be, that's where you need to be. We're not not in a membership drive. God takes care of that. But maybe he is speaking to you today about commitment to a body because Jesus loves the church. Maybe this is his plan. It's not my plan. It's his plan. So as we begin our growth groups, whether you're in a a group or not, and I hope you are, but we begin in full awareness of our imperfections, in full awareness of our weirdness, in full awareness of our shortcomings, but with this question on our hearts, do I love what Jesus loves? Father, I thank you for this meditation.